Now hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Do you ever go to the store and just get overwhelmed by all the choices? I mean, really, how many flavors and sizes of toothpaste do we need? This Sunday is somewhat like that in our lectionary. We have the option of the readings for the 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time. But tomorrow is the Feast of All Saints. And we have the option of moving our commemoration of that feast to this Sunday and talking about the communion of saints and God's promises to the faithful. But today is also Reformation Sunday, the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther seeking public debate and discussion on 95 items of church teaching. And what we might look at and look back and call the birth of the Reformation. And I was tempted to use this sermon to look back and celebrate our rich Reformation heritage. But two questions keep pulling me whenever I tried to turn. See, a few weeks ago, we met some people socially, and eventually the conversation drifted to church, as it often does. And pretty soon, the question came, what does your church think about? The actual topic doesn't really matter because it's not really a curious question, but a partisan question. It's not a question that seeks to understand or explore a topic. It's a question that seeks to know if you're on my side or the wrong side. It's a far too common question. The other question is far less common, but far more interesting to me. See, I had a meeting scheduled with a person, and he began by saying something like, I know this isn't what we were scheduled to talk about, but I'm wondering, what do you think is the future of Christianity and the church? What a conversation starter. 
What a fascinating question as we explore our reading from the 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time on this Reformation Sunday on the eve of All Saints. Let's start by taking some of the nostalgia out of the Reformation and placing it in its place in a long line of times when the church was challenged to translate the eternal gospel into a changing world. See, this is Paul's task, and the task of most of the New Testament writers, as they translate the Hebrew gospel into the Greco-Roman culture. It's the task of the great ecumenical councils of the 4th and 5th century, as they translate this underground movement of the church into imperial acceptability, and define how we talk about the great mysteries of the Trinity and the Incarnation, largely within the philosophical construct Plato. It's the same line that includes Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century translating the gospel from Plato to Aristotle. It includes the great monastic tradition from the Desert Fathers to the Benedictine monasteries to the mendicant preachers as they held fast the call to live a life in a way that looks different than the culture, a way that looks to God for truth instead of looking to the culture around them. This is where we place the Reformation in the 16th century, as the great minds of Calvin and Luther and Cranmer and Hooker and Jewell translate the gospel, this eternal gospel, to be understood in modernity with the rise of humanism and materialism. It's a question it's a line of reasoning. It's a line of mission that we step into. It's this line that will guide us in our 21st century generation as we enter a postmodern, post-Christian era. Will we resort to the tribal questions and try to defend a worldview that is no longer relevant to the culture around us? Will we look back and glorify a past then in truth was not particularly glorious? Or will, we, we, or will we respond in faith as we look ahead to the challenge of translating the timeless good news of the kingdom of heaven to speak to the genuine seeking questions of post-modernity? Let's look to our gospel reading for insight. We gotta catch up a little bit with where we are in Mark as the lectionary skipped ahead a bit. We're still within the Son of David portions of Mark's narrative of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. We heard last week as the blind man Bartimaeus is the first to recognize Jesus as the promised Son of David. Following that, the crowds took on the chance. They welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with palm branches and loud hosannas. Hail to the king, the son of David. But the son of David does something unexpected. He doesn't come in to challenge Rome and say, get out of here. Instead, he goes to the temple and he challenges those who change money and sell doves for the sacrifice. He overturns their tables and challenges them, get out of here, as he proclaims. Is it not written, my house 
shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The status quo is challenged. And the defensive partisan questions begin. Are you one of us or one of them? For those of you reading David Fitch with us, you'll recognize the enemy-making machine at work here. The chief priests and the scribes ask, by what authority are you doing these things? The Herodians and the Pharisees, in an odd teeming against Jesus, say, is it right to pay taxes? The Sadducees challenge Jesus about the resurrection. What does your church think about? And now we come to our scribe in the gospel reading. The tone of Mark's narrative changes. Mark does not describe the scribe as coming to test or trap Jesus like our previous partisans. Mark leaves the motives around his questions neutral. And the question itself is not novel. What is the first of all the great commandments? It's a popular question in the religious circles. What's the guiding principle that holds together all the 613 laws we find in Torah? By what first principle can we understand and reason our way to the ways of God? We might liken it today to asking, what is the gospel? Both are questions that can be asked with an open heart, seeking understanding, or with a closed heart, choosing sides. So let us look how Jesus responds. Jesus turns to the revelation of God to the people of God in Scripture. Jesus doesn't try to fit Scripture into the cultural question. Instead, he seeks to understand and explain the cultural questions in the light of the truth of God revealed in Scripture. Jesus will answer by saying that we understand the law, the way of God, first in the character and nature of God. And then as we love God and as we love those around us in the same way that we love ourselves, we begin to walk in the way. So let's dive in a little deeper. Jesus begins his answer to the scribe not with what we should do, but with a statement of who God is. Jesus quotes the daily devotion of the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are faithfully to proclaim the way of God into a changing culture. We need to not start with the culture, but with the character and nature of God. We need to hear again that the Lord, the creator and sustainer of all things, is not distant and theoretical, but has revealed himself to his people. First in the scriptures and later in Jesus, the word made flesh to dwell among us. And now God still reveals his character and nature in this age, as the church is formed into the body of Christ, entrusted with the holy mysteries, and called to image and reflect the character and nature of God to the world. Now, 
knowing who God is, we can do nothing else but respond in love. The 12th century Cistercian monk Bernard of Clairvaux described the four stages of coming to love God in this way. When first we do not know God, we love ourselves for our own sake. And then as we come to know the power and goodness of God, we begin to love God for what he can do for us. That is, we love God for our own sake. And later, as we grow and we come to know the glory and magnificence of God, we come to love God for who he is. We love God for God's sake. And finally, as we come to know the fullness of the love that God has for each of us, as we see ourselves through the eyes of God's love, as we know how much we are loved by God, we learn to love ourselves in the same way. We learn to love ourselves for God's sake. And in this way, we can begin to love those around us in that same way. We can love those around us not because they're lovable, not because they're good, not because we like them. We can love them because God loves them. As we come to know ourselves in the security of God's love, as we know ourselves as the beloved, we begin to see those around us through those same eyes. We begin to see everyone we encounter as beloved, whether they know it or not. You know, I wonder what would happen if we freed Paul's description of that more excellent way from Hallmark cards and weddings? What might happen if we prayed Paul's description of love that characterizes the people of God in communion of God? If we prayed that as a litany, as a corporate petition for God to transform us, to transform the way that we love, the way that we love others, the way that we love ourselves, even the way that we love God. Let's give it a try. I'll start each petition, I'll finish each petition with Lord in your mercy. And you can respond, teach us to love. Lord in your mercy, teach us to love. Lord in your mercy, teach us to love. Love is patient and kind. Lord, in your mercy, teach, teach us, us to love. Love does not envy or boast. Lord, in your mercy, teach, teach us to love. Love is not arrogant or rude. Lord, in your mercy, teach, teach us to love. Love does not insist on its own way. Lord, in your mercy, teach, teach us to love. Love is not irritable or resentful. Lord, in your mercy, teach us to love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Lord, in your mercy, teach us to love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Lord, in your mercy, Teach us to love. Oh, how different we would be if we truly learned 
love. And this is indeed how Jesus describes the foundations of the law to the scribe. Remember who God is, and in knowing God, you will respond with a love that consumes your whole being. And transformed by that love, you will be able to love your neighbor and yourself. The scribe responds as well with an understanding of the character and nature of God revealed in Scripture. This way of knowing God and being transformed by law, by God, by being transformed by love, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus responds, You are not far from the kingdom of God. What a response. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Might Jesus be speaking quite literally? You are standing right next to the word of God made flesh, the very embodiment of the kingdom of God. You are not only not far, if you reach out your hand, you can touch the kingdom. Might Jesus have been responding in a more figurative way? You're not far from understanding, but you're not quite there yet. If you knew God, you would know me. Might Jesus be speaking in a more practical way? Now that your mind understands the way of the kingdom is the way of love, you're not far from the kingdom, but now you need to travel that last little bit. Let your heart, your soul, and your strength be guided and transformed by love, and then you will be in the kingdom. Or might Jesus be talking in a more temporal way? You're not far from the kingdom and will be an eyewitness to the glory of the kingdom. As the Son of God conquers sin and death through the crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension that are now only days away. Might Jesus have meant all this and more? So what? How does this help us to respond in faith as we look ahead to the challenge of translating the timeless good news of the kingdom of heaven to speak into the genuine and seeking questions of post-modernity. We might first look at what questions are we asking as we approach Scripture, as we interact with one another. Are we asking the questions that seek to learn and grow and understand? Are we asking questions to take sides? Are we seeking to know more deeply the character and nature of God? Or are we seeking to defend status quo. More pointedly, we might ask, how are we being formed and transformed or possibly even deformed by what we are worshiping? Are we being shaped by love into the image of God? Or are we being shaped by the world through fear and anger and selfishness and division? Are we loving and worshiping God or something else? We might ask, as we look at those around us, do we seek to correct behaviors or do we seek to love well? See, the way of love always looks deeper and sees, the, and sees in those around us the hurts and the wounds and the insecurities 
that are ultimately expressed in the hurtful and ultimately self-destructive ways of idolatry, lust, anger, fear, and division. The way of love sees these hurts and holds these deep wounds and offers healing rather than condemnation, reconciliation rather than retribution. The way of love does not ask, how do I fix this person? Rather, the way of love asks, how is the Spirit of God inviting this person into the love of God? And how is the Spirit of God inviting me to join in this kingdom work? So as we approach our last few weeks, walking through Mark's account of the gospel, we can reflect on the character and nature of God as revealed in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension as we've encountered the way of Jesus, the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. In recent weeks, we've seen Jesus revealed as the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Last week and today, we encounter Jesus revealed as the promised son of David, the king, who comes not in the ways of earthly power, the unstable and precarious ways of trying to prove who is mightier. Jesus knows who is mightier, and he has nothing to prove. Jesus comes in the mighty way of love and refuses to be drawn into the petty partisan battles over temporal power. Jesus, the son of David, the promised king, refuses to chase after what wisdom describes as vanity. Mark's account will conclude as the centurion recognizes the crucified Jesus as the son of God. We live out this very gospel as love is written on us in thorns and nails. We live out this gospel in the Eucharistic life as we encounter that simplest and most difficult way to love. This is me given for you. Lord, in your mercy, teach us to love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.